Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Aquademia Podcast. I'm Sean O'Loughlin. I'm Justin Grant. And I'm Maddie Cassidy. And this episode is the very first of our Career Pathways series of episodes. We've been talking about doing this since before the show even started because we do have a lot of contacts and you know interpersonal relationships with people that have had very long and interesting careers and they've you know they they have some pretty cool stories and pathways that they've taken to get to where they are and so we want to sit down with some of those people and just have them tell their stories and share their experiences and maybe be an inspiration for someone who's just starting out their career so today we sat down with a very good friend of ours named Jeff Peterson I spoke with him before we recorded, and I told him that I consider him a, a pioneer in aquaculture. He corrected me to call himself a journeyman aquaculturist. So, <laughs> I love that title. I love it. Yes, and that is see how why. we are. Yeah, that's how we're um, how we're going to be introducing him. But Jeff was involved with GAA for the majority of the time that I have been here, and then he kind of he retired, and then is kind of like doing some consulting stuff on the sides. But he had quite a interesting career before that in a bunch of different countries and and states all over the place so he shared some pretty awesome stories some super interesting and fun uh little anecdotes so uh, i think i think the listeners are really going to enjoy this one yeah, yeah and it's one of those episodes where we really didn't talk much because we were just taking everything in that jeff was saying because he had so many fun interesting entertaining thought-provoking stories to tell that it was a great interview yeah, we just kind of let him go. We just kind of said, start from the beginning and then we'll talk to you at the end. <laughs> so, all right. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Jeff and look for uh, more of these types of episodes in the future. They We won't be doing them too often, but- They'll be sprinkled in. Yeah, if you have someone that you would love to hear the career story of, please let us know. And if you have their contact information, be sure to include that too. So- Enjoy our conversation with Jeff Peterson, and we'll talk to you at the end. Welcome to the Aquademia podcast. Our diet is hurting the environment in myriad ways. I mean, we desperately need to eat more seafood. This is a pioneering industry with a whole lot of people who have really good ideas and a lot of experience and are unafraid. Aquademia is your go-to podcast for a fresh take on all things seafood. Sitting down with our dear friend, Jeff Peterson, for our very first Career Pathways episode here at the Aquademia Podcast. Jeff, thanks for joining us. How's it going? It's great, John. Good to be talking to you from Florida with you guys up there in New Hampshire, I guess on a snowy day. So uh, yeah, <laughs> life is good. So Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So this is, the like I said, the first of our episodes like this. And the, the purpose of these episodes is to kind of highlight folks who have had long and interesting careers in seafood, uh, and in this case, particularly aquaculture. And Jeff, I talked to Jeff earlier today, and he described himself as a, what did you call yourself, a aquaculture journeyman? A journeyman aquaculture, yes, aquaculturist, right. You know, I, uh, I, st- I started out with the idea of becoming a medical doctor, and that kind of got derailed when the family moved because of my dad's job to South Florida. And I got very interested in marine biology, so I... Um, took advantage of the biology courses I had and switched to marine biology. And I guess you could say the rest is history, but I never, I never had a bunch of letters after my name, <laughs> except when we moved to South America and they called everybody with a college degree and 
ingeniero, which means engineer. My mom was super proud that I had a title. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So uh, I want to kind of walk through your your whole career. You know, right now as you are retired and playing ukulele in Florida. That's um, true. I, you know, you, <laughs> I hope you've been studying all those YouTube videos. No, that's, we just we just have a lot of fun with it. Thanks for that. Yeah. Um. But, you know, it, you had a lot of steps along the way um, to a very fulfilling aquaculture career and, and eventual retirement, then we still can't keep you away from us, uh, from the industry. So I want to start from the beginning yeah. where you switched over from dreams to being a medical doctor and just kind of walk <laughs> us through the steps of your career and what led you to where you are now and take as much time as you need because we're just, we're here to hear the story. Well, again, thanks for for this, and you know, I'm flattered to be uh, considered one of these, um, if you will, pioneers, or a, a, you know, a figure that, um, or I've had a role, I guess I would say, in, in aquaculture. And I, I, I was recently updating a resume for a talk I have to give, or I'm, I'm going to give, with the shrimp school uh, run by Steve Otwell over there in up in North Carolina. And I, as I went through all the steps of my CV, I, I just cut it down to years at different places, and I, 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 it was, it's been a 12-step program so far. <laughs> and, and going back to the beginning, that Florida thing, so when I found myself in Florida, I was doing some studying, and I got a job at a startup little aquatic research lab in Boca Raton, Florida, very close to what is now Florida Atlantic University. And we were raising fish for some bioassay work, and we were raising saltwater and freshwater fish eggs to get early development and use them for toxicity studies and a lot of different things. But anyway, I met my future wife, uh, who's still my wife, there, and uh, it was really fun. Was, you know, we were quite young back, younger than we are now, and it was a bunch of uh, starry-eyed kids with dreams of you know changing the world and feeding the world and. Uh, some of that worked out okay. Um, unfortunately, that little business, uh, like a lot of aquatic <laughs> endeavors, went the way of um, bankruptcy. And just as that was about to wind up, a friend of mine was starting, and get this, a recirculating aquaculture catfish farm in Lantana, Florida. And his son and I were good friends. He was. Lance, my friend, was an engineer, and I had been working on aquatic biology, and they, we started this project that even today, and this is 50 years ago, would be considered pretty high-tech stuff. We raised a million pounds of catfish, all recircled in the water, saved the waste, fertilized fields. That was in the early 70s, and bad luck on us because we, our main competitor was wild-caught catfish from Okeechobee and throughout the South. And when the first oil embargo hit, the U.S. in the early 70s, um, electricity prices just went through the roof in a, in, in a heartbeat. And we could not adjust our systems quick enough to compensate for that rise in energy cost. And we quickly found ourselves priced out of the market, which is too damn bad because it was a great project. It was a great tech. It was great technology to say even now. And I was having a hell of a lot of fun doing that too. <laughs> can, can, we, can we back up one second? How do you raise catfish in a recirculating system? We had uh, a dozen tanks, above-ground tanks, concrete floor, stainless steel panels for walls. This guy was also in the swimming pool business. And we had a giant uh, biofilter, really about the size of um, a small house. With oh, a trickling, geez. Yeah, a trickling biofilter. 
And then we had an enormous, um, looked like a, like a fuel storage tank open on the top that we used dissolved air flotation to lift the solids out of the process water, skim them off the top, save those, and then send the water back to the fish. And even today, well, let's talk about uh, flock systems and so forth. We didn't know, I have to say in all honesty, we didn't know everything we were doing, but it just as luck would have it. It turned out we had a sort of a semi-flock system even back then because we were not removing all of the you know, filterable re particles from the water. And it seemed like, the fact, actually the fish liked that better than real clear water, which is true for most species anyway. So anyway, it was a lot of fun. And it was really successful, but it was just too damn expensive. We couldn't compete with the, which was our, with our main competitor, which was farm-grown fish from Arkansas and Louisiana and so forth, or the wild-caught stuff from Lake Okeechobee right down the street. Yeah. Well, uh, and that's still an issue with recirculation systems today, right? It's you know, and it's funny. It's funny, Sean. When I got out of the catfish business in 1978, the price of whole fish to the processor was about 65 cents a pound. You know what it was about five years ago? 65 cents a pound. <laughs> now, <laughs> Granted, they've been able, the catfish farmers that are still around, and most of them, there's no recirculating ones that I know of, except, you know, hobby ones. And most of those are farms in Mississippi and Alabama and Arkansas and Louisiana and so forth. Of course, they've done a lot to be able to reduce their costs. Energy costs are way down, if almost next to zero. Feed costs have come way down. They use fewer people, better trained. So the cost has come down. So that whatever that price is now, whether it's 65 cents or higher, is more, more of that goes back to the farmer because, again, they've been able to figure out a lot on the cost side of the thing but it was, it was a fun gig one of the funnest part of that job was we we built a big 18 wheeler uh, trailer for an 18 for a tractor trailer rig fitted with aluminum hauling tanks and we drive out to arkansas and mississippi to these catfish farms and they were selling fingerlings they still do some of them and we load up our truck and we'd head back to Florida. We'd usually do about a day trip. And I was I was riding shotgun. I was the fish guy. So I had my oxygen meter and temperature gauge and all this kind of stuff. And we'd stop and I'd check the fish. And these guys were getting a little bit of coffee. We were driving down the highway one night, coming back to Florida, probably two or three in the morning, barreling down the interstate, probably 65, 70 miles an hour. I'm in the <laughs> I'm in the passenger seat. I look over at the guy, my buddy Steve, driving the rig. He was a he was a professional driver, sound asleep at the wheel. I mean, dead asleep. I had to reach over and I did two things. I grabbed the wheel and then I poked him and said, wake up. <laughs> oh, geez. Anyway, trails of the road, tales of the road. But that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. I have some pictures still from those days and uh, that was, those were some fun times. We learned a lot. We made a lot of mistakes, uh, but it was a good beginning. So what was next uh, when uh, we we guys beat out by that competition that you mentioned? Yeah, yeah. Uh, now you know the catfish business, as you guys know, is still is still I would I wouldn't say thriving, but it's certainly a, a viable part of the U.S. Mm -hmm. food production and aquaculture. But it's all farm grown stuff and big farms out in the lower Mississippi Delta states. So you know I, I keep saying myself it's better to be lucky than sometimes to be good because. As luck would have it, after the catfish farm went out of business, I was I was living on the farm, so I was sort of kept with the uh, caretaker role. And the bank now on the farm, and they sent me to a world aquaculture, we used to be called the World Mariculture Society, meeting. It was in Atlanta, Georgia, and that must have been in 1978. I get there late, go into the Hyatt Regency Hotel, downtown Atlanta, check in, and like all good farm biologists, I said I was a journeyman aquaculturist, I go to the bar. 
And uh, <laughs> in the Naturally. bar was a pool table, and around the pool table were several people playing, one of whom was a good college friend of mine, who had come from Hawaii to recruit some biologists for a new farm that he and some other people were starting up in the state of Hawaii. Well, I have played some pool in my time, and I can't say I'm very good, but I could, me and Ed, my friend, we got to play, and we could not be beat that night. By the end of the night, long story short, he had offered me, a, uh, he made me an offer to come to Hawaii and see if I was interested in this job and this new farm they were building. I called my wife, Teen, and the next morning I said, you'll never believe this. <laughs> and uh, so I went, and then we went, and we stayed out there for four years, growing freshwater shrimp on the north shore of the island of Oahu in a town called Kahuku, and a uh, former sugar mill town, and we occupied, or we took, we used some of the land that was formerly sugarcane, and we built shrimp ponds there, and they're still there today. Still in operation? It's still in operation. We were growing freshwater shrimp. We started with macrobarium rosenbergi, which was a big thing back in the 70s. Everybody thought that was going to be a big aquaculture species. And, you know, it had some unique characteristics. You could grow them in the hatchery pretty easily. They grow big size. Fairly popular with the Asian population, which is predominant in Hawaii. But uh, never really had much of a mass appeal. And during the time we were in Hawaii, we got interested in some of the stuff that was going on in South America, notably Ecuador. So we had, we had brought some shrimp from Ecuador, and we also had a colleague from Japan. We were trying out marine shrimp in these ponds. We, we were close to the ocean, so we could fill some of them with salt water, which we did. And we, we fooled around with some marine shrimp. So we, I stayed in Hawaii for four years, and I'd still be there except for the fact that our boss, who was a serial entrepreneur, I mean, this guy could sell ice cubes to Eskimos, man. <laughs> He was on a plane one day, got to talking to the, when people used to talk to each other on planes, um, <laughs> talk to the guy. I, I would, I, I've never known that. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's completely well, that, foreign concept to me. That shows you how old I am. Anyway, so, <laughs> so my boss is talking to the guy next to him, and the guy next to him turns out to be a, a from Ecuador, interested in shrimp farming. Well, long story short, by the time the plane landed, my boss had wangled him a deal, himself a deal, and us to go down to Ecuador and see what was going on. Now, mind you, this was in the early 70s. So, um, excuse me, mid-70s. And in the early 70s, shrimp farming had really started in a very rudimentary way. People were digging ponds, you know, with, with, with shovels, or basically, using wild-caught larvae from the ocean, feeding them chicken feed. I mean, very, very basic, basic, basic beginnings. Anyway, we ended up with a contract to go down there and build this Ecuadorian guy and his company a farm, which we did. And... I told my wife, I said, look, we, I'm going to go down for a year and see if we can figure this thing out. And, um, you know, we'll come back to Hawaii where we were. Now we had two young girls and uh, loved it up there. I mean, what's not to like about Hawaii? Anyway, the business started to catch on. And so I said to her, you know, we ought to come down here and just try this out for a couple more years. The money was great. I have to say that. And it was really fun. It was like the Wild West down there. Every, every new day was a challenge. I mean, there'd be strikes and fuel shortages and then the power would go off. And then there'd be sort of a little mutiny in the village next door for one reason or another. And every day was a new, something new and exciting. Um, long story short, we went down on a one-year contract and we stayed 12 years. <laughs> wow. And you stayed working on that same farm that you had built? Well, the, we, we started with 100 hectares, which is about 250 acres. And we expanded that to 500 hectares. And then by the time we left, we had 1,000 hectares, which is a you know, pretty dang big farm for down there. Back then, it's some, most, of the, most of the farms are consolidated and they're a lot bigger. 
But the challenges were adding to the farm, you know, of course, adding to the staff, learning a lot about the emerging technology of growing shrimp, the feeds, the disease management, water quality, all that kind of stuff. Training people, the, uh, we were out in the country where people really, you know, if they graduated sixth grade, that was a lot back then. Hmm. Um, and in the middle of the, our time down there, we built a hatchery out on the coast, and that was a huge challenge and a lot of fun. And because when we first started now, we were buying post -log. I used to go on these adventures with my buddies, and we'd stash suitcases full of money, go out on dugout canoes out in the esteros and the estuaries, and buy batches of wild-caught baby shrimp, put them in our pickup trucks, and haul them back to the farm. It was crazy. <laughs> crazy. And um, Do you think I, you I, could do that now? I could not do that now. No. <laughs> Well, I could do it for one reason. I can speak really good Spanish now, which I couldn't back then. So my, negoti <laughs> my negotiating skills were pretty pretty poor back then. I could probably do a lot better actually now, but in that regard. I got to tell you one story about this adventure. So part of the reason for starting the hatchery where people are starting to figure out how to breed shrimp, you know, we call it maturation, breed mamas and papas together. So in Ecuador, the, the shrimp we were growing, Panaeus, now called Ludo Panaeus, Vaname, is native to the, the coast of Ecuador, the entire coast. And the broodstock, or the, the wild caught, the wild broodstock are, are huge. If you can see my fingers, really, I caught, we caught shrimp that were a foot long. I have pictures. Wow, jeez. And we wow. would bring these back to our newly built hatchery and, you know, adjust the water temperature and play soft music and give them all kinds of delicious things to eat. And, you know, it wasn't too long. <laughs> Before we had figured, we and a bunch of other people had figured out how to make these animals. And once we were able to do that, the picture really changed. Because now we basically could program all of our supply. We could stock the ponds at much higher density. We didn't have to go out and make these crazy adventures, catching wild post larvae up and down the coast of Peru and Ecuador, and even into Colombia sometimes. In fact, there was a time when they were bringing wild-caught post larvae down from Central America. Anyway. So, at the, Jeff, at that time, was it not known before then how to breed that species of shrimp or did you guys well, figure that out or did you just kind of have to read the literature and make it work or it's it's a little bit of all of the above sean what happened was that there had been a bunch of researchers a lot in japan a lot in china that were working on these different species but basically the same technology basically the same approach and it kind of all came together in the mid 70s there were this we had we had this place out on the coast called Hatchery Row, and there were probably two dozen newly built hatcheries, and they were staffed by Germans and Brits and Aussies and Americans and Japanese. Everybody was trying to figure this out. Of course, everybody we go to the bars at night, and everybody had their new story to tell or lie to tell about how they figured something out. But eventually, the technology evolved so that it was pretty well known how to do this. Now, I have to say, a ton of money was spent. A lot of really clever people. I was working on the farm. I would just go down to see progress and pick up loads of PLs. My friend Nick Carpenter ran the hatchery. And our boss, a guy named Joe Taber, really was key. He really is a, a guy you should get on this show sometime. He's a, was a visionary and a great a great leader and a great boss. Well, anyway, if you we, connect us with him, that would be fantastic. Yeah, he, admitted, he later was running a big shrimp breeding company out in Hawaii. So anyway. I think the question was, you know, did we figure this out? We did, but again, with the help of a lot, a lot of people. And, you know, what the, you know, what, what kind of feed are you using? And what kind of water filtration do you have? And what kind of lighting regime do you have? I mean, how many males in the tank versus how many females? And how many times can they spawn successfully? And 
all this kind of stuff back and forth, back and forth. And it was really quite exciting when we finally would get some, you know, they breed at night or they spawn at night. So uh, we'd get the reports in the morning about how many females had been, for lack of a better word, impregnated the night before. Um, and it gradually, as those numbers started to rise, we said, hey, this is working. <laughs> Amazing. So I don't know where we are. So we, I stayed in Ecuador for, we stayed in Ecuador for 12 years. And, um, you know, one of the things that really has been such a big determinant of aquaculture success, we, we were totally naive about, and that is the issue of disease. We had a few little skirmishes with some bacterial diseases and a few parasitic things. I mean, we didn't think they were a big deal. But in the early 80s, we started to see what would become endemic, widespread uh, bacterial and viral diseases. And we've been riding high on this shrimp farming. Like I said, we expanded the thing three times, we built the hatchery. We had a brand that we were selling mostly in the United States. And it was a great product. It was, it was a huge success. And the main thing is that the Asians had not really ramped up as well, as big as they are now. So the prices were still very high. In fact, they're about at least two or three times what they are now for Farmgate uh, product. So everybody was having a jolly good time down there. I was I was now proficient in Spanish, ha ha ha. Um, but we had three kids now. We adopted a, a daughter in Ecuador and we were traveling the country. The kids were going to a great school team. My wife was working at the American school. It was it was a good life. It was a good life. And then how do they say, you know, the the shrimp poop hit the fan because <laughs> Yeah, that's what they, they say. Yeah, that's what they say. <laughs> the uh, the first of a wave of diseases hit us, and we called it back then Taura, T A U R A, like the zodiac sign, uh, sign Taura. It was a it was a um, it was a weird thing because we're along the coast where we were, our farm was there's acres, hundreds, well thousands of acres of banana plantations, very close to where we were. And the banana guys sprayed their crops with fungicides because they have they also have weird disease problems. One was a fungus called the black cigatoka. Sounds bad just saying it. Anyway, yeah, that's when our shrimp started to get sick, ours and a lot of people started to get sick with that. It must be from all those spray plants. And there was a big, you know, all this investigation, toxicity studies. We thought we were going to get all the shrimp are not only getting poisoned, but maybe our customers were getting, you know, could be getting this stuff too. It was a big, big concern. And we tried mightily with a bunch of people, our neighbors, our friends, our hatcheries, everybody was trying to figure this out. But everybody was locked in on this pesticide, or I should say a fungicide um, problem, or, or theory, I should say. And our friend, Don Leitner from Arizona, who's now retired from the disease department out there, he was baffled. We sent some, because of our connection with Hawaii, some samples got sent to Hawaii, and Jim Brock, Dr. Jim Brock, a aquatic pathologist for the state of Hawaii, he figured out that it was a virus. And after much testing and much doubt, we realized, hey, that's exactly what is going on here. By this time, the business had really been decimated, so to the extent that we decided it was really time to leave because we were getting very nice compensation, you know, foreigners living in Ecuador, but the business would not support that for us or anybody else at that point. So we couldn't recover from this disease problem fast enough and unable to really know what is the next step. And that's another, I'll tell you about that later. But so anyway, move back to the States. That was in 1994. So we had been down there 12 years. 
our oldest daughter went all the way through school. Well, all the way through from kindergarten to high school. Now. It, wow. was, it was a pretty amazing time. And as a plus, like I say, we got to speak some Spanish. All the kids, my wife speaks Spanish. We got to travel not only all over Ecuador, but to Peru and to Colombia and to Brazil and to Galapagos Islands four times because the Galapagos are part, part of Ecuador. And Ecuador itself is a magnificent country. The beautiful coastline, beaches, surfing beaches, mountains, snow-capped volcanoes, fantastic indigenous population, music, the food, oh, was, the Amazon. It was, it was can't can't country. say I've ever been to Ecuador, but I have been to well, Peru Well, if you ever get a chance, go, because it's a blast. It's really I went to a blast. Per, I went to Peru with you, and my, uh, yeah. my most prominent memory from that trip was getting a uh, unidentified <laughs> stomach parasite that uh, caused me to lost, lose 11 pounds in the following two weeks after we got back. So uh, yeah, I think well, I need, I'll need to give Latin America a second shot, but it's it's not well, very enticing to me. <laughs> yeah, that, that happens to a lot of folks, unfortunately, and it's it's too bad it even happens now in today's time. But as it, yeah, and that happened to us, all of us, at many times during our stay down there. But thinking back, the um, I mean, the experiences of driving up on the side of Cotopaxi volcano up to 14,000 feet where the ice starts with the kids and driving through these, you know, alpine meadows and plains with llamas and alpacas and eagles. It was, it was just, it was a magnificent time. And plus we always had a freezer full of shrimp. So there you go. <laughs> well, that's, what's important. So then we back to the States in what 94 you said. Yeah. So, the aquaculture thing was starting to catch on. Like I say, Ecuador and now a couple of months, other countries were, were starting to, you know, produce serious amounts of shrimp. So there was interest everywhere, including the States, mostly in the South, because that's where it's warm and you can grow these things. So I came back, we came back, and there was a couple of farms. We came back to Hilton Head, South Carolina, where my mom and dad were living. Dad was still flying back then for Delta. And there was a few farms in southeastern uh, South Carolina, right across the right across the river from uh, Savannah, Georgia. Anyway, one of these farms was for sale. A uh, small farm. It had uh, ten acres, very intensive ponds, big aerators, and all this kind of stuff. And I was I was so full of myself back then, man. I thought I could, you know, I could do anything. So I rented this farm, and I ran this farm with by myself with one helper. And we, can, we planted the shrimp or stocked the shrimp in the springtime, usually right around Easter time, April, May time frame. Grew them all summer, harvest them in October, November. And if you're lucky, you could you can make some money at it. Well, I did this for two years. Produced 100. The first year we produced 110,000 pounds of shrimp. The second year was a little bit less. But the deal is when you're farming, I don't care if you're farming wheat or tomatoes or shrimp, it's a seasonal crop. So we put all this you know, investment, the feed, the electricity, the labor, um, all summer long with the hope that you didn't get a hurricane or a disease and you'd be able to harvest something at the end of the, and you get one, basically one paycheck a year. Well, we got, you know, kids in college now and a home and my teen who's always been the smarter one in the group here. <laughs> no, that's a smart man right there. She says, you know, this is, I know you're having fun with this and you're living your dream, but if, if this thing goes bad, we're in big trouble. Because I, I basically had to pledge the house, two cars, retirement accounts, so we could buy the, you know, the, the materials we needed to farm a crop. And the, the second year, so this would be 1996, 
one of the diseases that we had run away from in Ecuador had now shown up in the United States. And um, I thought, holy sh, excuse me. Um, <laughs> it showed up in Texas and I was in South Carolina, but I said, you know, I know how fast these things spread. It's like this Corona thing. I mean, you just don't know where it's going to go and how it's going to get there. So I said, you know, I said, Dean, you know, you're right. This is, this is crazy. So I didn't buy the farm. I was leasing it. So I said to the owner, I said, look, I've had fun doing this. I'll buy, I'll buy, I'll buy it at this price, which was less than half of what he was asking. He said, no, I think it's worth my price. I said, fine, good luck. So we uh, ended the agreement. I sold my tractor, sold the aerators, (laughs) sold my Kawasaki mule. Man, I love that thing. Uh, I still have some of that farming gear somewhere. Anyway, I did the only thing I knew how to do, and that was continue farming shrimp. As I said, I'm a journey journeyman aquaculture guy. So a bunch of my friends from Ecuador and other places had started a farm in Mexico. So I went down there and worked for a couple of years. And family moved to Arizona. We, the farm was right across the border. In Golfo de Santa Clara, Mexico, on the Sonoran Desert side of Mexico. And... It was it was great. It was a big farm, grew a lot of shrimp, Panea styloroster's mostly a different species. But I had a, the family was up in Tucson, excuse me, Yuma, Arizona, not the garden spot of the world, by the way. But um, and we were East Coast people, you know. We lived in Florida. My family's from the East Coast. Teens from Philadelphia. The kids were back here. We decided the West, although it was a lot of fun in a lot of ways, wasn't for us. So we came back east, and that would that was after two years out there. And I'll pause for a second before we start the next little piece because uh, can't let you guys catch up in case you <laughs> no, <laughs> this, yeah. guy's, this guy's crazy. <laughs> oh, I'm right here with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was curious about the diseases. What sort of steps did you take once a disease popped up in an area, especially when you were in back in the States? Yeah, that's a good that's, – you hit the nail on the head, Justin. And really the, the business – aquaculture business has been shaped by what – we did and what everybody else has done in the beginning you think there's going to be some medication you can put some some antibiotics some probiotics some some addition to the pond environment some of those can help but long term the only way that these have these diseases have been outrun or or dealt with is through better breeding technology and luckily and this is a whole nother side chapter. Luckily, during those times, we were all collecting these brood stock up, up off the coast of Ecuador. We were catching them to put it in our own hatchery, but some people were taking them back to places like Hawaii, like Texas A&M, like Waddell Center in South Carolina. And miraculously, those shrimp that we caught had not yet been affected by, or some of them, most of them, had not yet been affected by some of these diseases. They were in a, far, a different part of the coast where we were. And as it turns out, the beginnings of what we now know as SPF, specific pathogen-free shrimp, were derived from those parent stock. And if we had not had those disease-free stocks, I don't know if we would be where we are today because we had animals that were naive. They had no exposure to these diseases. So we could breed them. That doesn't mean they wouldn't get sick someplace else, but at least we had animals that were specific and that is known pathogen-free at the outset. Which really gave us a big, a big advantage because if we can keep the pond environment clean, they can stay healthy. Now, I'm not saying that's an easy thing to do, but all of the successes in combating diseases have basically come down to you got to breed your way out of it. If you talk to George Chamberlain, uh, he'll tell you the same thing. There's things you can do. You can lower density. You can, you can, of course, you know, 
do all kinds of things with water, you know, filter it and chlorinate it and probiotic and what have you. And those help. I'm not saying they don't, but really at the end of the day, breeding is the way to find your way out of these things. And all of the other models, including the terrestrial animal husbandry, pigs, cattle, chicken, they all, they're all doing the same thing. They're breeding animals that are resistant to or free from certain diseases and making sure that they do everything to keep those diseases from getting all this biosecurity stuff we hear about has to deal with, you know, just keeping the disease out. If you can start with clean stock, uh, you've got a, you've got an advantage. So, but that takes time. It takes yeah. time. It takes a lot of, a lot of research, a lot of blind alleys. It didn't work out. This, we thought this line was going to be fine. It turned out, man, not so good. And it's kind of a weird thing because it seems like, Obviously, for aquaculture, we want animals that grow fast, use less feed, and um, you know can tolerate crowding or something anything like that. But that's exactly opposite. Sometimes you get with a, with a uh, disease response. In other words, the animals that are most resistant to the disease aren't necessarily the fastest growing ones or the better food converters and so forth. So, getting those two pathways to kind of line up has been really, really hard. Most people say, yeah, I'll take the disease free, but you know, I get a crop size that's a lot less. Well, that's, yeah. well I don't like that either. <laughs> but you know, this is 25 years ago now. So things have really, you know, and again, George, George Chamberlain has been a pioneer in this kind of work. And, and they still, they're still working on this, getting them better every, every season, every new generation has some characteristic that's a little bit better than the last. So, but that's, that's the answer. But it takes a lot of time, and you know, here I am. I yeah. need a job, so I couldn't hang around long enough. That you know, people say twelve years. Man, that's a long time. I would say that the first year was hard because of the language. We moved around a lot trying to find a place to live. Uh, I was at the farm, you know, sun up to sundown, and then some. Teens at school with the kids. You know, we. we she says we already spoke to each other for a year. <laughs> um, <laughs> That was tough, but after we got our settled in, it was great. And then the last year was really, really tough because these diseases were just wiping us out and we couldn't kind of find a way out of it. And as they say, we went down the whole wrong road on this toxicity thing, which turned out to be not the answer. So at the end of that, we'd say, you know, we had, we had 10 really good years in the middle, so let's be thankful for those. So you mentioned George Chamberlain. Yeah. Who is the president of the Global Aquaculture Alliance? What a coincidence. At what point did, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, for our listeners who don't know, yeah. at what point of your story do you two meet? You know, it's, has this already happened? No, that's a good question because George was active in aquaculture mostly from the feed standpoint. He had an early relationship with the Purina Feed Company because out in St. Louis, Missouri, and they were interested in shrimp feed diets, shrimp diets. So he was coming down to Ecuador and a lot of other places that were starting to catch on with Panama and uh, Nicaragua and Honduras and parts of Peru. So he was, he was a regular visitor, mostly from the feed angle. And we met, in fact, he, he had come to our farm, uh, I won't say half a dozen times, you know, as colleagues and as friends. And Purina did it still has an interest in, in shrimp feeds. So that whole feed division got sold and is now a, a multinational, a part of a bigger multinational company. They're not even making feeds, I think, except for dog feed in the United States anymore. But yeah, I met him early on. Um, and don't forget that George was an early, one of the early presidents of the World Aquaculture Society. So he was super interested in not just feeds, but what was going on worldwide. 
And when he would come to a place like Ecuador, as I, as, I, as I think I told you, there's a lot of expats down there. I mean, a lot of Americans and a lot of uh, Brits and Germans and French people and Aussies uh, from everywhere. And that really fit in with the world aquaculture picture. So we had meetings in Ecuador and other places in South America. He was there for those. We you know, we'd see him and work on just like you guys do for gold now, you know, speakers and topics and, you know, what, what's, what's going yeah. on. But it was different back then. I mean, things were at a much more different place than they are now. But yeah, I've known him for a long, long time, long, long time. And my career's really had two parts. This whole production side, you know, I love being outside. I love messing with the machinery. I like working with the people on the farm. I like, you know, when we figure stuff out, I really like that. I spent my whole career out in the sun. And that's why I, I have to stay out of the sun these days. But anyway, I got a it's call. Easy to from do a, living in Florida, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> That's why we like living up in Maine so much. In fact, my wife still wants to go back up there. So keep your eyes open. We may we may show up. Um, where was I? Oh yeah. So the second part of my career, after all this production stuff, um, in fact, it kind of dovetailed really nicely because after the farm in South Carolina, when the team said, "Yeah, we, we can't do this," we went to Mexico. Ah, eh, this isn't so great either. We came back and I got a call from Bill Moore. I go, I know you guys know who he is because he and Betty Moore helped start the Aquaculture Certification Council, which now is known as BAP. And Bill and I have been friends for a long, long time. He helped us so much when we were all in South America. I visited him in Panama. He came down to Ecuador and back and forth, back and forth. He called me and said, you'd be, you might be interested in something that something's going on. He said, we're going to have a class. I heard about AC, excuse me. Um, ACC had just gotten started with the first shrimp farm kind of guidelines that George wrote with some other folks. And he said, we want to set up a program to inspect farms to make sure, you know, to go along with these new guidelines. And he, he said to me, he said, you'd be good at this. And I said, what do you mean I'd be good at this? And he said, well, you've been all over these farms in South America, so you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, we, we had the first course for what is now BAP Auditor course. The very first one was in Guayaquil, Ecuador, 2002. And the first trainers were Bill Moore, Dr. Claude Boyd, and George Chamberlain. <laughs> so we were colleagues, and now he was a—I was one of his students. And I think the guys all know that from that, those very humble beginnings, we now have the biggest aquaculture certification program in the world. So, I, Justin, you asked me about George. George and I go back a really long time. So that's that was the start of your the kind of the second phase of your career, right? Yeah, you're looking at yeah. the auditor yeah. side of things. Exactly. So, I think you know, I, I'm proud to say I had a really varied background: catfish, freshwater shrimp, you know, southern United States, Hawaii, Ecuador, travel all over South America. You know, that was that was a lot of fun. And if I could say to anybody, man, there's a big world out there, and if if, if the opportunity should ever present itself. You know, take a take a take a take a chance on one of these places. Go to some country you think sounds interesting. I mean, Ecuador was a dome back in the day when we went there, but it's beautiful now. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's places in the world that are like that. Um, you know, I've been to India, and I've been to China, and I've been to Malaysia, and I've been to Vietnam, and I've been all over the Southeast Asia. It was rough sometimes, but you know, those countries—they've all come a long, long, long way since the early, early days. But you know, when I left, when I got when I got out of the farming business in South Carolina, I had one more farming gig, and that was with Belize Aquaculture. I got the, the owner and I were kind of good friends, and he came up to South Carolina, saw what I was doing. He said, "I need you in Belize." Well, I couldn't go down there full time, so I went down for a couple of years to help him out. When Robbins McIntosh left Belize Aquaculture, 
the farm manager that they had hired didn't work out for one reason or another. And so Robbins recommended me to go down there. So I would, I would get for, for two years, I spent every other, I spent two weeks a month down there. And that was a blast. Uh, that was a recirculating aquaculture system for shrimp this time. But you know, when you, when you're working on the field for most of your career, after, after a while, you think, you know, is this where, uh, this is where it's meant to be just driving around ponds and shooting the shit with the farm workers. You know, that was, I mean, it's fun. I like doing it, but this, uh, this auditing thing came up and, um, I was among the first class there and from auditors. And you know, from the from records and the history, we didn't have a whole lot of business back in the early days. In fact, we basically had to go out and drum up business, which would be a conflict of interest these days. But back in the day, that's what we did. Thanks to Bill and Betty Moore, we, uh, we got the thing going. And then, I mean, like I say, it's great to be lucky. And I have been very lucky. And uh, the ACC, the AP idea took off. And now we've got farms, we've got hatcheries to inspect, we've got feed mills, we've got processing plants. And I was going to all those places. And I did a, a bunch of audits in the early years as we learned a lot about the standards and a lot about doing the audits as well. And then the big, the big breakthrough for that was when we aligned ourselves with the ISO and uh, you know, the, the, the real disciplined world of doing audits, you know, under these guidelines from GFSI and all those kind of things. So it's become much more professional, much more, uh, transparent, much more uh, detailed than it was in the beginning. But that's that's been fun to see too. That's been great. And then so help- to me, the, the the capstone of my storied career was when uh, when Wally asked me to come up and you know take over the program integrity department up here in New Hampshire. That was, and still is, I want to say the best job I ever had. <laughs> I remember that. I was I was there when that happened. So yeah, I met um, you guys up there. We so had, how long were you uh, auditor for BAP ACC BAP? Okay, so it started in two thousand and two. It was really very scarce for four years. Two thousand and six, a pivotal year. That's when Walmart endorsed or said of all the aquaculture programs that were inspection programs that were out there at the time, and there weren't very many. Uh, Walmart, Peter Redmond said, you know, these guys at ACC have kind of figured this out because they got the environmental piece, they got the social piece, they got the food safety piece, and they got the traceability piece. And he said, all of those are super important. It's not just food safety. It's not just worker relationships. It's not just environment. It's all of those things. And we had, because of George, because of his history, because of Bill Moore, maybe some folks like me, we all said, hey, these things are important. And that, and And really, the you know, the, 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 uh, the foundation relied on those early ideas and those still are valid today. And that's, I say that's what makes the program great today because it considers all those things. So I audited for four years and then um, Bill Moore called me up and said, we need you full time as a quality control uh, manager or specialist. And I was reviewing audits and, and getting very involved in the auditor training back then. So I couldn't audit because that was one of the rules of, of limiting con- conflict of interest is we cannot write the standard and then audit the same standard or work for this. You can't work for the standard company and audit as well. Yep. Right. So I said, okay. So I ended up, I, I we were now living in Florida and, um, they had the office over in Crystal River, which is about three and a half hours from here. So I would go down and spend a few days a week over there, and then I work from home here, on the road a lot, doing a lot of uh, witness audits and a lot of auditor trainings. You guys know. So yeah, and then that uh, that 
wonderful day. I stopped in on our way up to Maine for our summer vacation and stopped in and had lunch with Wally and Jeff Fort. And um, he called me later that afternoon or the next day and said, hey, how'd you like to come and work in New Hampshire? I looked at Tina and I said, you would not believe what Wally just asked me. Because Wally had moved to Florida to try to retire. I feel like at this point, she probably believes everything you say because of the journey you've been on. I feel like at this point, Jeff says, you wouldn't believe what he just said to me. And her eyes just roll in the back of her head. Like, oh, where are we going now? But, I got my suitcase. <laughs> yeah, but so what she said, I said, I fully expected to say, are you crazy? You know, we've got kids and grandkids in Florida. And she didn't even stop to think one second. She said, let's go. So I was thrilled and still am. I mean, like I say, that was such fun working with you guys up there. Um, but that's only the part. I mean, that's just part of it because we, we were so – how should I say, embedded in, you know, making this program better and more transparent and far reaching and more comprehensive. And we want it to be, we want to have a high degree of integrity. We want our auditors to be the best. We want the program to be the best run and so on and so forth. And I think to a large extent, we've we achieved that, not because of me being there, but it was just a special time for all of us. It was really, 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 mm-hmm. really great. Yeah. And, and, you know, I grew up in New England. I would still go up there. I've been going to Maine now for 75 years. We still love going up. In fact, we just booked more time up there this year. So right. that was fun. That was fun. Even on the snowy days like you're having today. Yeah. <laughs> and I miss it. you guys and I miss my old Volvo. Man, I miss that little car. <laughs> you did love that car. You did love that car. <laughs> I do remember that. I really appreciate you sharing your whole story with us. So what's, uh, what's in the future now? So now you're retired, but you, you can't stay away. No, my team would say I flunked retirement at least three times already. So, <laughs> so what are you doing now besides playing ukulele? Well, I'm doing a lot of that. Still some guitar here and there. Um, you know, taking the grandkids fishing. Let's see, uh, a lot of baseball games, boys basketball games. Sounds like you're doing pretty well at retirement. And you know, yeah. I it's, it's, I my mother was Irish. Maybe that's why I've had such good luck all my life. A guy that I used to sail with. And I kind of took care of his boat for him. He's a dentist and busy all the time. A year just before we were left for New Hampshire, he gave me, he couldn't sell this boat that we've been sharing. So he gave it to me. So I got, a, I got an 18-foot cat boat, sailboat sitting in my backyard that is very close to being launched again for being three years out of the water. And uh, if you guys ever come down to Florida, we'll go sailing. I'm booking a place to be, yeah. <laughs> Our next interview is going to be in person on the boat. On board. Yeah. So I renamed I renamed the boat. That's the name of the episode. I renamed the boat. It used to be called Three Cheers. I don't know how it got that name. But it's a cat boat. If you know if you're a sailor, if you're in New England, you've seen these boats all over. It has one one big sail, gaff rig. It's only eighteen feet long. They're all over Portsmouth and everywhere else. They call them cat boats. I'm still I don't know really why they call that name, but that's what they're known as. So the new name for a boat is the Gato Feliz, Happy Cat. All right. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> That's, That's me. You. I am one happy cat, man. <laughs> so any oh. any seafood-related uh, plans for your future? Well, besides eating a lot of seafood, um, I'm still working pretty closely with Dr. Steve Otwell on some of these HACCP concepts. Yep. And, and more and more that mm-hmm. this whole idea of risk analysis and prevention at the farm level is starting to become pretty much the way people do business. I mean, that's just the way they operate farms. It's not been formalized to the extent we'd like to see, but a lot of these speaking engagements and and teaching things I do are promoting this HACCP seafood safety awareness campaign, if you will. So yeah, I'm doing some of that. I like doing that. 
I'm excited about, you know, what's happening up in your neck of the woods with these big land-based salmon farms. I certainly hope all of them succeed. Um, I know there's a bunch, not just in, we have one just south of Miami of all places, a salmon farm. So whether that represents a next new, new big thing, I don't know, but certainly a lot of folks are, you know, fired up about it. And uh, if it happens, that would be great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks again for sitting down with us such short notice and, you know. Yeah, we can't thank you, you enough. You know, it's yeah. just, it's such a hoot to be, as we say, just talk and chop. I mean, like I say, I could talk about this stuff all day long and into the night. And if you bought me a glass of red wine, we'd be going by tomorrow. So. Well, that's what we'll, that's what we'll have to do <laughs> when we go sailing. But, you know, every one of these little <laughs> stories yeah. has a whole other kind of, you know, like I'm fishing for the broodstock and what happened on those and all of these crazy ideas that we tried that didn't work out for one reason. But, you know, as they say, it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so looking back, looking back on your career, what would you say is the most, do you have like a story that is the most memorable or the craziest thing that's happened in your career or the <laughs> most terrifying thing? Like what is, what is something that really, really sticks out in your mind from your career? Oh my gosh. Um, and then I got one more question for you after this. Okay. One thing that sticks out was, I mean, I remember the, the, the fun of living in Hawaii. That was just, I mean, it was such a wonderful place to live and the music and the culture over there. But one event was we were, this is now 1983. I'd been in Ecuador for one year and we we're getting ready to start this hatchery. And you've heard this thing called the El Nino, right? The big rainy yep. season phenomenon. Well, there were roads in Ecuador back then oh, yeah. that were terrible. We rented a shrimp boat, I mean, a, wild, a shrimper, out of the port of Guayaquil. We went up the coast of Ecuador, all the way up to Esmeraldas, which is on the Colombian border, a long ways up by boat. When we got on the boat, myself and my friend Osvaldo Leon, another biologist, the provisions we took for this adventure were a stalk of bananas, a 50-pound bag of rice, and five gallons of cooking uh, oil. And I said... I thought you were going to say, like, a... Oh couple gallons of rum I think the captain had that but he was not showing it to yeah. We, yeah. And I said so I just asked Oswaldo I said well what are we eating I said well we're going to be fishing it for shrimp all the time and most of what they catch is not shrimp so we'll eat whatever we catch we get all the way up there and we caught these uh, we went fishing every night for broodstock and like I say these, these animals are you know 10 inches a foot long we brought a tank along. You'd, you'd appreciate this, Sean. We brought our own tank. We had our own life support. You know, we had aerators and oxygen and all that kind of stuff. We, we eventually caught 120 animals. And we were, gonna, we were meeting a plane back in Guayaquil to ship them to Hawaii where we had our, where Nick was doing the research. We're coming out of Esmeralda's offshore now because we couldn't cover the roads. The roads were all washed out from this big storm. We're coming down on the cacique. That was the name of this shrimp boat. Wooden boat. Captain's up at the wheel. The only light in the whole boat was on the compass so he could see where, you know, he could just chart the course, which he had done a million times anyway. The boat was full steam on a Detroit diesel 671, just chowing away in the back there. And I get up to just, just get a breath of fresh air, take a look around, you know, pee over the side. And we hit kind of like a mini rogue wave. It must have been two or three in the morning, dead of night, offshore Ecuador, headed south. And the boat kind of lurched. And when it lurched, I kind of stumbled and fell. Oh, jeez. I almost fell overboard. He, they would have not even known I was missing until sometime the oh, next wow. morning. Oh, but as God. I was starting to fall, 
the shrimp net was all piled up in the back of the boat and I just grabbed onto the net, my heart racing thinking, you dumbass, why did you think you had to come out? <laughs> anyway, um, we lived to tell the tale. We sent, we sent. <laughs> There's that luck again. Uh, I'm telling you, I've been a lucky yeah. cat all my life. Um, get back to Ecuador and we're hurriedly packing these shrimp to send them on the plane to, out of Waikia, through Miami, over to Los Angeles, and on to Hawaii. We could only find 100 shrimp. I said, I know we caught 120. But we had put sand in the bottom of this tank because people told us they like to burrow down in there. But we went through the sand, couldn't find it. And like I say, we had a rush. So we just, okay, we got to go. Took the tank back to the farm, cleaned it out. There were the 10 shrimp. Oh, of course. Still alive. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Awesome. We, we, took, we took a home and ate them. Well, yeah, naturally. <laughs> I would tell you guys, you know, I told even when I was up there, and I still tell Chris Weeks and Ken and Dave Yunker and all those, Chris Bartlett and so forth. You know, people take seafood for granted. They think, you know, it just magically appears. So if you get a chance to go to a processing plant or a farm or a hatchery, you all should do that. And talk to the people who are out there working because – you know, you've done some of the, you know, some of this educational stuff, but you know, this is where it's happening. These mostly, I would say, younger than me people are, they're going through the same sort of thing, you know, learning what feeds work and how to clean the water the right way, and you know, really what mm -hmm. what these animals like, what they like to thrive, to grow, to reproduce, you know, to be healthy. And you know, sometimes we do a pretty crappy job of, you know, keeping them healthy. We we're more interested in shoving product out the door rather than Maybe well, we should be keep taking better care of them sometimes. Anyway, I'm impressed when I go to hatcheries and farms and, and feed mills now that the level of knowledge and the level of dedication and expertise that a lot of people are bringing to the table based on those kind of criteria. I think it's just a terrific, terrific evolution of the business. Yeah, I think that's something we should do more of is getting some of the employees out yeah. And kind of seeing you guys, and, you know, you you might not have such a good location. You might not have shrimp farms up there, but you got mussel farms, you got salmon farms, yeah. you got some res farms, seaweed even. You got processing plants all over the place, um, yeah. and a whole lot of universities, including the one in New Hampshire. Mike Chamber, Michael Chambers, is the he's got some. He had a salmon yeah. pen out there in Portsmouth Harbor for a while. I took a, I took some folks from the office out there one afternoon. I don't know if he still got it. Anyway, I'm always. I guess it's my journeyman aquaculture background. I'm, well, you tell me we're going to a farm. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jeff, Jeff, I had one more thing I wanted to ask you. Sure. Um, you know, the reason we're doing this, these, I talked to you earlier about why we're doing these career pathways, because I think some people, when they're just starting out their career in seafood or just deciding what they want to study in college or finishing up college, seeing people that have had successful careers and have seemed to have done a lot and kind of, you know, ended up in some higher positions or desirable positions for someone that might be just starting out. Um, it's a little intimidating and daunting. And I think these these types of conversations and stories are very inspiring to people on that level uh, to see kind of the journey that they could potentially have ahead of them, you know, that uh, there is a there is a pathway to having a successful career. So what advice would you give to someone that maybe is in that situation, just starting out their career? And I know you already kind of mentioned like how important it is to take advantage of opportunities. Like if you have opportunities hey, to travel. I was travel. just going to say, you, you know, um, you've heard that expression about opportunity knocking. You don't know that it's knocking until the opportunity is you've either taken advantage or something else has happened. But 
you know, this is a fast moving business like some, like so many are. And there's, there's interesting challenges and opportunities and um, experiences to be had in a lot of places and not, you know, in a lot of levels, you know, it could be a different country, it could be a different company, it could be a different species, it could be a different product. But I'd say, I'd say if something interests, you know, anybody that's interested that finds a, that finds that they're really curious about that thing or another thing about this business, whether it's a new product or a new market or a new interpretation of what we thought was, you know, the standard way of doing things, you know, you got, you got to explore those things. That's what keeps, that's what keeps everybody growing is try new things, look at new stuff. Question, why do, why do we do the things we do? Is this still valid? And I've been, like I say, super lucky. It seemed like Lady Luck knocked on my door just when, just when I needed her. So knock on wood. Yeah. But, I, you know, we create our own opportunities. You know, you put yourself out there. You guys are doing great work. You are spearheading things like the, the job board and the, aqu- the Aquademia podcast. You guys are out there. Things will, you're getting known in your, for your specialty and for your ex, you know, expertise. And that's great. And you don't know, something will come along. I'm not saying you should. Or you will, but some, something tells me people will know when it happens. And there's a lot in this business. I mean, so many countries are involved in us, global seafood supply chains. It's, it's lots of opportunities. Yep. Awesome. Good stuff, man. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much, Justin and Maddie. Do you have anything else for Jeff? No. All right. Good to talk to you guys. Hey, anytime. If you want to go back and redo or add more, I'll be happy to help. Awesome. Well, we definitely will talk to you. And if again. you want to buy me that ticket up to Portsmouth, that's okay too. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> I'm just I believe they're having another auditor training course well, up here soon. I think. I think they're having one in June, and we're going to be up there because we go to Vinalhaven up in Maine every summer, and we've already started working on our trip up there. We're going to be passing through Portsmouth sometime in early June. Please so. do let us know when you're here. We'd love to that's see you. We'd love timing. to get dinner with you guys. Love to see yep. Teen. Yep. Definitely. Right. We'll, make, we'll bring a little. We'll, we'll do a little mini concert for y'all. Sounds good. <laughs> let us let us know the uh, the set list ahead of time, and maybe we'll learn some tunes. Okay, so we'll you still playing, again. right? Yeah, Are you playing? Yeah. Cool, cool. All right. Well, again, Jeff Peterson, journeyman aquaculturist. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will hopefully talk Aloha. to you soon. Thank you, Jeff. Aloha and saludos, and great to see you guys. Great to talk with you, and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Bye bye. Folks, that was our conversation with Jeff Peterson, journeyman, aquaculturist, Jeff Peterson. Like I said, just an amazing guy with an amazing story and a very uh, diverse yet oddly specific <laughs> career. <laughs> um, we, we, we love Jeff. We love having him on the show. He's, we've done some video work with him for some of the courses we've done. We've worked with him quite a bit. And, you know, I've traveled to a bunch of different countries with him for work. And he's just a great guy and a... Uh, very smart guy with a you know with a heart of gold so we're really grateful that he was able to join us and i know i learned some really interesting things from him and i just loved all the stories he shared so i think i would say career pathways episode one success for sure yes all right so remember if you like this you have recommendations for someone else you'd like to hear us talk to or any other topics you want us to talk about please don't hesitate to reach out to us podcast at aquaculturealliance.org follow us on twitter aquademia pod or call and leave a voicemail 1-603-384-3560 and we will talk to you next time all right thank you so much bye